And welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining me on this sports podcast. We have quite a bit to talk about. It's going to be a great sports week. I know you can feel it as well. We got Jose Youngs from MMA Fighting Preview UFC 261, headlined by Usman Masvidal 2. He breaks down that fight as well as the three title fights on the card and surveys the MMA landscape as only Jose can. And then it's my buddy Nick Morton making his debut on the show. Baseball player back in his day, he previews the MLB season. Looks at you know the first month of it, what to expect, what his Dodgers are doing. Uh, and now also, we also talk a little soccer. I don't usually do that on the show, but Nick's an expert there as well. And we talk about that Super League fiasco and some MLS stuff as well. Going to be a great show. I'm glad you're with me. It's Jose Youngs and Nick Morton. Time to start the show. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, pleased to be joined by recurring guest friend of the show from MMA Fighting. It's Jose Youngs, live on the scene from Jacksonville as, we, as he gets ready to cover UFC 261. Three title fights on the card. Jose, thanks for joining the show. Anytime, man. I figured I was going to be back on the Money Mitch show this week, so perfect timing. Had to be back for, uh, for such a good card. And, uh, you know, first of all, you know, I just got to ask you what it's like to kind of be back in the swing of things. I know we're not officially normal with everything, but we're getting there. You're on the road covering a fight card. We're going to have some fans. It's a loaded card, as we're going to get to in a little bit. But what's it like to kind of be back in the swing of things? It's uh, it's it feels it felt very bizarre getting on a plane to go cover a fight because I can't like outside of Fight Island. I can't remember the last time I hopped. I guess the last Jacksonville card, so almost a year ago, last May. Hmm. Uh, but then, even then, when I landed, like Jacksonville was dead. We were, the pandemic had just started, so it still felt bizarre then. It feels bizarre now because I like people are out and about in Jacksonville. Obviously, a bunch of people are still wearing masks, but it felt eer- eerily bizarre to be back. Not only be back on the road, but like when you land. You got to go to your hotel. You got, and then you got to find food throughout the week. So, if it's twelve months ago, this is normal. But right now, it just it feels it feels it feels very bizarre considering we've only had fight cards in the Apex and uh, Fight Island. But I can't even. It is it is an eerily is an eerie <laughs> out of body feeling. Well, I can totally understand that. I also think that uh, as we get back into it, it'll it'll feel more normal as you get back into the groove and as we see more stuff. And, and you know, the UFC is not starting slowly. They're, they're starting back with this car that we're going to get to. But before we do, I just want to mention, Jose, last week there was a fight night, uh, among other things, among other viewing opportunities on television. There was a great fight between Robert Whitaker and Kelvin Gastelum with Whitaker. Bobby Knuckles again getting it done. A uh, five-round fight and uh, a virtuoso performance, I would say, as he's got to be back in the driver's seat for a title shot, a rematch to get that belt back from Adesanya. But thoughts, Jose, on Whitaker's performance because since losing that title fight, the way he lost it to Adesanya, I think he's rebuilt himself quite nicely. Yeah, I, I said I've been saying it even since Robert Whitaker lost to Israel Adesanya. I still thought Robert Whitaker was one of the two best middleweights in the world. In the UFC, I'll say, because Gegard Mousasi over in Bellator might ha- might be the best middleweight. Mm. He's clearly the most experienced. Just we'll never get to see him. Like him, I don't normally care for like the, oh, I wish one fighter came back to the UFC or not, just because I want whoever pays them the most, that's where they should go. 
I want Gegard Mousasi back in the UFC solely so we can see him fight Robert Whitaker and Israel Asanya. That's a whole different conversation. Right. I thought I've been thinking Robert Whitaker has been top two, if not the best middleweight in the world. He just didn't perform against Israel Asanya, and he won fair and square. I think if they fought ten times, Izzy wins six, Ooh. Robert wins four, maybe five, maybe five and five. I think they're wow. le- they're all they're all a notch above. And I'll, I'll liken it to, like, especially because they're in New Zealand, Australia. This is like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Like, they are right next I to, like, it. they're they're on the perfect, like, it's the, it's L.A., Boston. They're the prime of their careers. They both, like, broke in the league at the same time, and they just dominated everything. Like, championships, awards, they were the best. That is Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya. They, are, they just make each other better, uh, and that fight has to happen again. The only the only nitpick that I would have with what you just said is, and this is before Adi Asanya, but Whitaker, some of those, I think the second Romero fight wasn't exactly his best performance. He got the decision. It was split. But I get what you're saying. I get the fact that Adi Asanya, that was just a bad night at the office for Whitaker. And since then, it's it's three wins. It's all decisions. And dare I say, Dominant probably he hasn't lost a round. I mean, I, I'd have no. to go back and watch the Till fight. I can't remember. But I don't feel like he lost a round in that run. And these are, you know, Till, Cannonier, who was supposed to be the guy, probably gets a title fight if he wins mm-hmm. that fight. He smashes him. And then Gastelum, who gave Izzy maybe his toughest fight, probably his toughest fight as a pro. So I'm with you that this fight has to happen at some point. And I think even Adi Asanya understands that. Do we have any idea when that might be? Um... That's a good question. Uh, that fight will for sure happen next, I think. Okay. Because if Cannonier and Till had won, they're fighting Izzy. If yeah. Till had beaten Robert, he fights Israel Adesanya. If Cannonier fights, beats Robert Whitaker, he fights Israel Adesanya. And Robert Whitaker's just like, nah, man, I'm the second. But I'm, I'm, I'm not letting that happen. So I would say maybe August. Maybe August. Because there's we already got May. Is Houston locked up? Yeah. Uh, June. We don't know where it's going to be as of right now. It's Figueredo Moreno. I think Moreno too. Ooh. I think if Jan, if Jan and Sterling, if if Sterling hadn't had that bad concussion and there wasn't all that tomfoolery after their first fight, I bet they would have tried to put the bantamweight title on that same June card. So they have the bantamweight and the flyweights on the same card. Uh, July is obviously the McGregor Poirier show, so there there's no title fight there. So I would say maybe August. August. Is a good one. Yeah. yeah, and sub- September is going to be Jan and Glover, Jan Blachowicz and Glover to share. So I don't think they want Izzy and Robert Whitaker to be a co-main event because the heavier weight class is always at the top unless your name's Conor McGregor. Uh, so, I, yeah, I would probably say August is probably a safe bet, and I, I think that'd be I think that'd be the best bet anyway because both of those have to go through a lot of – they have to jump through a lot of hoops to get into the United States and whatnot uh, and travel because of Australian – New Zealand's restrictions. So – I'm betting the UFC is hoping the world clears up a bit mm-hmm. in time and it'll be easier to get them somewhere else. Well, I can't wait for that. Uh, I think August is a great estimate and it'd be, it'd be a great opportunity for both. The last thing on this before we move on, Jose, is the uh, resident MMA historian and, and combat mm-hmm. sports historian. I know UFC, It's it, we're in this weird time frame where fighters are allowed to challenge for two belts. You know, Conor McGregor mm-hmm. kind of busted down that door and, and whatnot. So, 
Izzy, my question being, he went up. It didn't work out on first go. Maybe only go. We'll see if he has more forays. But going back down to middleweight. Now, in boxing, you know, war, that hasn't always worked for that fighter going back down and, and just staying in that division. How do you think that will affect, you know, his going up and then going back down, trying to defend that title for Izzy? Is he going to be able to adjust just fine? Or you think there might be a little, little difference in uh, his game and uh, his physical fitness? No, actually, I think he'll be 100% the same, mostly because he didn't change his body to fight at light heavyweight. Like, John Jones is putting on massive amounts of weight to fight it at heavyweight, like rightfully so. Israel Adesanya just didn't cut weight. Izzy wasn't a light heavyweight. He was a middleweight that didn't cut weight. Um, and I think, and Dustin Poirier has talked about this for a bit, too. When Dustin Poirier used to fight at featherweight, and then he went up to lightweight, he he felt like it took him three or four fights to become an actual lightweight. Like for a while he was just walking in like he was a featherweight that just stopped cutting weight. Now he walks around like outside the octagon. He's probably walking around a 190, 180, and then he's cutting yeah. down to 155. And so he's ballooned up. So if any, if Izzy did it a way he thought would work out, it just didn't. Cause Jan is a, a great fighter and had a perfect game plan. Uh, Izzy just thought that if he didn't cut weight, he would be faster and more hydrated, and it is what it is. But, yeah, Izzy will be 100% fine. I don't think it will have any effect on his body because he didn't bulk up. He, he didn't bulk up to fight John. He just walked in off the street. So that's a good point. You know, John Jones, what he's doing, and in boxing it was Roy Jones Jr. who went up, kind of yeah. changed their weight, and then tried to go back down and lost some of that quickness and had to rebuild. So it's good for Izzy. We, we, we will look forward to that fight well, let's look at what we got this weekend. Jose Youngs from MMA Fighting here to preview UFC 261 from Jacksonville, Florida. Three title fights on the card. A great, great lineup on the main card, but also the prelim and the early prelims, Jose, so we can start there. What are you looking forward to before we get to the pay-per-view level? I always like watching Oliveira fight. Him versus Randy Brown should be a good one, but besides that fight or in addition to that fight, what else uh, are you looking forward to? On the prelims, well, the the Oliveira Randy Brown fight should be a banger. I don't think Cowboy Oliveira's ever been in a boring fight, and I think Randy oh. Brown is one of, the, one of the more underappreciated welterweights. The problem with Randy Brown is every time he sniffs the top fifteen, he loses pretty violently. Like Nico Price, uh, his most recent loss. Uh, like so, Cowboy Oliveira's not ranked, but you can't you can't make a mistake against Cowboy because his cardio is just unreal and he doesn't stop. And if you make one mistake against him you're gonna have a bad night Carl Roberson uh Brendan Allen I think is a very interesting middleweight matchup uh Brendan Allen has long been one of the more shining prospects of middleweight he's he scratched the top 15 but then he just faltered against Sean Strickland and he just made one mistake and Strickland capitalized it and I think if they fight 10 times I think Sean Strickland wins once and it just happened to be that night uh I think Brendan Allen is a wizard on the ground Carl Roberson is an incredible striker so uh neither of those two were ranked but that's not an ind- indictment on their skills. That's just the, where they are in their careers. Carl Roberson, I think, only has like 12 fights in his career. And I, he's only lost to, I think, Cesar Ferreira, like in his way, like maybe three, four years ago. And Cesar Ferreira is a savage. And then he jumped up in weight on short notes to fight Glover to share and lost. And then he just lost to Marvin Vittori. And Marvin's like the third ranked middleweight in the world. So he's only lost to the best of the best, or he just wasn't ready at that point in his career. And then Brendan Allen's. Only lost to Sean Strickland in the UFC. Outside of that, he's lost to Anthony Hernandez and Eric Anders and Trevin Giles on the regional scene, all of whom are in the UFC. Eric Anders is a freak athlete. He was a he's national champion champion at the University of Alabama football team. 
And, uh, and then after yeah. that, he went and did MMA, and, like, he's unbelievable. Like, he's headlined cards against Machida in a fight a lot of people think won. Anthony Fluffy Hernandez just tapped out Rodolfo Vieira. And when I say he tapped out Rodolfo Vieira, <laughs> that would be the equivalent of – I can't even think of an equivalent in another sport. That would that That's like Overeem knocking out Badahari. That's like that. That's like yeah. if Conor McGregor knocked out Floyd Mayweather. Because Rodolfo Vieira yeah. is the uh, the the highest level grappler. Like, if you can think of a grappling tournament, Rodolfo Vieira has won it. <laughs> and not only has he won it, he's probably won it at least two or three times. So you open his trophy case, it's just gold medals, like, just littered throughout. And so he submitted him at his own game. So... Uh, yeah, Brandon Allen's unbelievable. Uh, Carl Roberson's unbelievable. Dwight Grant, I'm very interested to see how he bounces back after his first knockout loss. I chatted with him today. He said it's kept him up at night just because he he, he admits like when you lose, you lose. You get beat up, you get beat up. But if you make one mistake and you lose because of it, those are the fights that tend to stick with you. And his opponent, Stefan Sukalik, coming off a two-year USADA suspension, not for steroids, just for banned substance uh, because he had like a surgery or something and it was like a banned sub. So not his fault. He takes, he, he's like, I just messed up. It is what it is. So uh, I would say the top three prelim fights right there, all fantastic. And then after that, I mean, they're all great. Kevin, not Vidad is a fun fighter from Arizona. It's just Connolly is a very interesting man from Canada. He fought Michelle Pereira and won <laughs> in his UFC debut, moved up in weight to fight him. So Interesting stories, but those top three fights on the prelim card before the main card starts are all ones you should tune in for. I know you had to get the Arizona <laughs> reference in there. I of knew, course. I knew it was going to get mentioned. Uh, and obviously, there's nobody. If there was somebody from Providence, we'd be talking about them as well. No way. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with I agree with that. I think, uh, like anything, we got to start early with this card. There's a lot of good fights. Before you get to the pay-per-view level, which starts with uh, a familiar name and, and another guy that may be rising in the light heavyweight division. It's Lionheart Anthony Smith taking on Jimmy Crute, uh, the brute as he's known. Well, he's got 13 career fights, does Crute. Smith has 50, so there's a little bit of a difference in experience there. Crute's only got one loss. It was that Peruvian necktie submission that was just yeah. you know, insane to witness. But Lionheart's had a couple losses. He did bounce back in his last fight. He's fought three times in the uh, during the pandemic, so he's staying active. Uh, the Teixeira fight was one of the most violent ones there was. But, you know, this is a, a pivotal moment in both these fighters' careers, I would think, Jose Lionheart trying to stay relevant and Crute trying to throw his hat into the race, being one of the guys moving up the ladder. How do you see this one going? Well, not only did Anthony Smith fight three times during the pandemic, he headlined every card. That's you true. would have That's to go. True. You would have to go back to 2018 to find the last time Anthony Smith didn't headline a card. I think he what, had like nine straight cards that he was the, the headliner, and one of them was against John Jones. And then the others were like fighting Alexander Gustafson and Glow. Like, look, look who is, he's lost to is Alexander Ratchik, who I think is, if, if, if it's not for Glover, Ratchik gets the title shot. For sure. Ratchik is next in line. He probably fights the winner of Reyes and Jerry Prohaska for the next shot. Glover, number one contender. John Jones, greatest of all time. Tiago Santos. Probably the most violent man at middleweight yeah, at the really time. It's really not that, that would... bad when you break no. it down like that. Like everyone thinks it's a slide, but he's losing to some some greats that or all time greats in Jones's consent. Yeah, and like look, knocks out Evans, knocks out Shogun, submits Vulcan, like submits Gustafson. Like he's beating the best of the best. And if you look at his career, because people will look at his record and they'll say, Oh, he's thirty four and what, like sixteen or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And then if you so you're like, Wow, he's he has a lot of losses. And at one point in his career he was eighteen and eleven. 
And then he, I think, what's so that he's gone like 20 and four in like his last 24 fights. So that is a whole, that going 20 and four, that's almost a career in some people's minds. Like I, I talked to Anthony Smith today and he says you can break his, his MMA career into two halves. Like he, he, he was like, people forget that this is his second run in the UFC. He had, he, he had a fight, mm-hmm. he had a couple fights in Strike Force. And when he, when UFC bought Strike Force, they brought him over, and he lost, and they cut him. And then he went and fought on the regional scene, and he lost on the regional scene. Went to Bellator, got cast off from Bellator, and had to win a bunch of fights on the regional circuit to get back to the UFC. So Anthony Smith got signed by the UFC, cut by the UFC, went to Bellator, left Bellator, fought a bunch of random guys all, all around the world, and then got back to the UFC. So Anthony Lionheart Smith is every definition of just – one of the most mentally tough individuals I've ever met in my entire life and one of the most articulate people I've ever met in this sport for someone that's had 50-plus fights. So tough night for him, though, with Jimmy Crute. Like, he is every – like, Anthony Smith was a middleweight that went up to light heavyweight, and now he's obviously a light heavyweight. But if you look at Jimmy Crute coming off the bus, you're like, wow, that – is that guy looks like Brian Urlacher with hair. It's a he football a, reference. Yeah. Well, he's, he's just a huge man. Yeah. He is a huge, huge man. And he hits like a Mack truck and his only loss to Misha Serkinoff. And after that, he kind of just repackaged himself and got better. And what he, I don't even think he's had a decision win. He hasn't gone to the decision in the UFC. He's, he's killer be killed in every sense of the world. Uh, and he's, so he's unbelievable. I think he's the, he's the youngest fighter in the division. I think, uh, I think he's like 25, 24, uh, he is what six two six three, so he's he's gonna be a future contender for sure. I have no idea who's gonna win, but I think someone's gonna be put to sleep at some point. Great start to the card. I love all 100%. that. This is the per- This is the perfect yeah. fight to kick off the pay per view. And uh, maybe a wrestling reference like for Anthony Smith. If you're not gonna main event, at least start the show. Be that opening 100%. match. You know, get the 100%. crowd going. Hundred uh, percent. It's almost it's almost too easy to book this stuff. Uh, but no, in, in all seriousness, that's going to be great. Uh, and then the middleweight fight after a pair of thirty six year olds, Uriah Hall taking on Chris yeah. Weidman, born a little over a month apart from each other. And Jose Uriah Hall is you know they're both thirty six. Hall's on one of the best runs of his career. He beat Anderson Silva in his last fight, fourth round, really emotional. If he wins here, you got to think he's going to be on. Uh, on the program, uh, a, a player on the list of guys that could be in the title picture. Chris Weidman's two and five in his last seven. Did win his last fight, but trying to trying to bounce back as well. It's interesting to see two fighters same age, kind of trending in opposite directions. Hall appears to be the the trendy pick in this one. I'm never going to count Chris Weidman out, but I'm just very impressed by what Uriah Hall's done in the last couple of years. Well, not only are they the same age. But this is a rematch. Like, this is the second time they fought. The last time, the first time they fought, Uriah Hall was 4 0 and was the, uh, I think it was the, the Ring of Combat middleweight champion yeah, in New Jersey, right. which is the regional scene. And Chris Weidman was 2 0 and was going up against the unbeatable champion in Uriah Hall. And he, he knocked him out. He stopped him. So uh, this has been a, 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 a rematch that Uriah Hall has said, like, the name Chris Weidman didn't interest him much in the sense that like like what you said like Uriah Hall has never been higher in his career in the UFC and Chris Weidman uh, is probably on the downward trend I think he may I bet he retires in the next five fights but he's like just the thought of being able to erase that for my first it was his first pro loss ever was to Chris Weidman 
and beating Uriah Hall got Chris Weidman his first ever title. Uh, it was a regional title, but it was a title nonetheless. And then he won a couple more and went on to the UFC. So I don't know who's going to win. Uriah Hall has looked pretty unbeatable lately, but it's Antonio Carlos Jr., uh, Bevin Lewis, and Anderson Silva. That is the entire gambit. That is the entire spectrum of fighters in their in their points of their career. Bevin Lewis was every definition of the word a blue-chip prospect. Antonio Carlos Jr. was in the prime of his career. Aaron Silva, probably reti- probably done with MMA. And even before that, Paulo, the fight against Paulo Costa was awesome at UFC 226. Wow. That fight ruled. The TKO against Jocko was awesome. And then after that, who he lose to? Musasi, who I just praised to no end <laughs> like 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Derek Brunson, who's like top five. And then Robert Whitaker, who I just said could be the best fighter middleweight in the world. Also has a win so, over Masasi too. People forget has about a as spinning well. back <laughs> kick and a flying yeah, knee. So he's lost to yeah. Paulo Costa. I think he's what the number two ranked middleweight. Musasi, Bellator champ. Derek Brunson. I want to say he's four or five. And then Robert Whitaker is the number one middleweight in the world. So he's not. He's losing the top three, like top three middleweights, and beating everyone else. His his uh, partnering up with Safe Sayud over in in Texas, his head coach at Fortis MMA, has invented an entire new fighter in Uriah Hall. I think he has never looked better. He has never been easier to talk to because he used to be very standoffish with the media. Now he's he's very open with his mental issues go with mental health and depression. And his sister went through a rough patch, so I think he's in a great place mentally. He has a new he has a fantastic team in Texas. Uh, I favor Uriah. But, man, Chris Weinman, I never know what to expect. He could just wrestle you to death. He can knock you out. Or he could be on the receiving end. Because, like, who do you lose to? Reyes, Jacare, Musasi, Romero, and Rockhold. And they were yeah. all by KO. Mm-hmm. They were all by KO. Yeah. And then he – so, like, he's the only – like, but, like, everyone I just said, probably, like, top three fighters. That, like, a bunch of them were champions. And a bunch of them were no more contenders. Only losing the best of the best, too. So, to me, this is a 50-50 fight. But if I'm a betting man, I'd probably put money on Uriah Hall. Yeah, uh, it's hard to always go against Wyman, but those losses have not been good. The other thing to add to Hall, Jose, is he looks to kind of get back into a rhythm of fighting. He's yeah. had some bad luck with some events being canceled, with Wyman in the one case having a COVID-positive test. So he hasn't really gotten into a rhythm of fighting. I think this could be his, his you know, the best yet to come, so to speak, which is hard to crazy to say, not just with a 36-year-old, but with a fighter who's as experienced as him, but I agree. All right, let's get to the title fight still. Three of them to talk about, starting with women's flyweight. That will be going on third from the last with Valentina Valentina Shevchenko Bullet taking on Dreska Andrade, who made that switch, you know, moved up to that division, the flyweight division, got an impressive win, and was vaulted into the title picture. I don't think we need to praise how good Valentina is uh, on this show, but Andrade is a good fighter. She beat one of the women that's uh, fighting in front of her in one of the fights yeah. uh, before. So realistically, what do, what do you think Andrade's chances are as she faces one of the greatest female fighters that combat sports has ever seen? Uh, I, I obviously very much favor Valentina. I think the only fighter that will, could pose any threat to her is Amanda Nunes. I actually think Valentina Shoshenko won the rematch, and I think she was on her way to winning the first fight if it was a five-round fight. Uh, but Jessica Andrade... Is hit so hard. She's very short for the division. Uh, she has fantastic cardio, and she, she's very underrated at catching kicks. So she can catch a kick and then dump you on your head or like take you down or 
she can catch you and then counter with a left hook to the body while you're while you're like you're you're twisted so it just connects with your liver valentina throws a lot of kicks uh this fight is going to end in two ways it's either going to be very very boring in the sense that valentina is very much a counter striker uh she like waits for you to make a mistake before she explodes and Jessica Andrade is very much a bull. And so it's going to be like a bull matador fight. So I think Valentina is either going to catch Andrade or Andrade's going to catch Valentina. Or Andrade's going to be very nervous to rush in. And Valentina is going to be waiting for Andrade to rush in. So I think it's going to be very, very boring or just violent. So I don't think there's any middle ground. Uh, so, But I clearly, I favor Valentina. Oh, I favor Valentina against everyone at 125 pounds. But. I think Andrade poses the biggest threat by far to her title reign. That's fair. It's definitely fair. I just, there's so much that Valentina can do and, and, and think that's the greatness of some of these fighters, whether it's the John Joneses, the Amanda Nunez, you name it. There's just so much that they can do that I think Valentina's boxing gets kind of underappreciated in, in a regard. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that could be something that, that could work here. Those kicks are lethal. I think if it's a boring fight, that might be better for Andrade, but I love Valentina in this one. Um, but, hey, she's running out. It's like Amanda. She's running out of people to fight. So if Jessica can give her a fight, then who knows what will happen for the future. I mean, we could see this run back if it's if it's close, but I don't know. I think we have uh, Lauren Murphy and Joanne Calder would have to fight. And the winner of that will, if like Valentina loses, they'll probably give her the rematch, rightfully so. But again, I favor Valentina against Andrade, and the winner of Lauren Murphy and JoJo will probably get the next title shot. JoJo should have fought for the title already, uh, but when Valentina pulled out, JoJo decided to stay active, and she lost to Jennifer Maya, um, fair and square. She said she was dealing with a lot. She, I, I think she just needed to fight because so, she wanted to get paid. Right on her. Good on her. Yeah. And then Lauren Murphy has been on an absolute tear at Flyweight. So the winner of that should be the next in line at 125 pounds. And then... Uh, I selfishly want Alexa Grasso to get near a title shot just because I think that would be a very fun striking matchup. But, yeah, there's a lot that has to happen before that comes comes to fruition. The next fight is the one I'm the most excited for, uh, Jose. And, and I think it's fair to say the most competitive that we're all expecting to see. Uh, I've been building this fight up for a long time. I'm glad to actually see that it's happening. But the women's strawweight fight, uh, Zhang Weili taking on Rose Naomi Yunus and... Um, there's not a lot that needs to be said to sell this fight. Just stylistically, love watching these two fight, and, and the old adage, styles make fights. Styles make violent fights in this case because I expect this to be a war. Before we get to you know the preview of what we think is going to happen, would you agree that this stylistically is shaping up to just at least be a barn burner? <laughs> oh, I mean, this fight is going to absolutely rule. Uh, I think Rose is past the point where she – like she, Rose has been in a few snoozers in her day. Uh, but I think she's past that point. I think she's in the like the physical prime of her career. Mentally, she seems better than ever. And then Zhang Wei Li is unbelievable. I mean, she hits so hard. She like if you see her, like I saw her abs her, on Instagram the other day. Oh, like, just if you yesterday. if you follow her, <laughs> if you follow her on social media, there is no one that takes her fitness as serious as she does. I think she lives in the gym. Uh, she's always training. She has like crazy, like she'll, she'll just like post videos of her, like kicking pat kicking pads. And like, it's, I'm like, Oh, I got my, my liver hurts watching this. So, uh, 
or fight against Joanna, I would say one of the five greatest title fights I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, I think there is a legitimate argument that Whaley lost that fight, but it is what it is. The judges saw it one way, and those are the only opinions that matter. It went pretty much across the board, fight of the year, across the board, uh, and rightfully so. So I I, I favor Whaley uh, in this. I just think she's faster, stronger, hits – I think she's way stronger. She hits harder. Uh, I think she's a little more technical with her striking, but – Rose is clearly the better grappler. I think Rose is one of the better grapplers at 115 pounds. Uh, she can submit anyone. She can put you to sleep any way she wants. She has a fantastic hip toss. Uh, so I would say if Rose can get on her back, that's going to be a long night for Whaley. Like if she backpacks her and then chokes her out standing, I think that could be one way. If Whaley keeps this standing, I think this is her 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 fight to lose. But man, if Rose can get any sort of grip on her, that that's a wrap. This is too close to call for that very reason. Uh, and and it's crazy. It's crazy to hear you say that. I agree that Rose is at a disadvantage on her feet, which sounds kind of you know it's insane to hear because it's like who else but who else but Zhang would would that be the case for? Um, I, I think too, Rose. You mentioned being in a good mental state and what happened after losing the title to uh, Andrade beforehand and not fighting and, you know, dealing with what she was dealing with. She came back, she fought on Fight Island last year, wins that fight in the rematch, and I think now is getting back to wanting to fight and wanting to quickly turn around. She was pushing for this fight, um, yeah. you know, even ahead of time. So that could be good as well. Um, but this is, <laughs> this is this is this is insane, insanely made up of, uh, of a match, and I think uh, I'm going to go with Rose in this one. Just out of you know, just out of personal, just rooting interest, but coin flip. I mean, no outcome is going to surprise me. And uh, if this was uh, if this was headlining, I mean, no one would be really disappointed because I think fight of the night is is not safe. You never know, but I think it's a it's a good guess. I think this is the perfect co-main event because everyone is so invested in the main event that people are going to tune in and catch this fight. And based on how those two women perform, it's. This is this is this is probably an, uh, an an easy favorite for fight of the night for sure. Zhang Wele fighting uh, in the greatest female fight I've ever seen, one of the top three or four of all time ever in in the Ioana fight. Rose has some of the best finishes I've ever seen. Um, this is going to be good. Can't wait for it. And that leads us to Jose Youngs from MMA fighting here on the Money Mitch Effect, the main event, the rematch from a Fight Island fight. It's going to be Masvidal taking on Kamara Usman. Masvidal Usman 2. Usman won the first fight pretty handily, but the baggage with that, and I know we've all heard it uh, a lot, is that Masvidal didn't get a full fight camp. He was a replacement. When Burns went out, he stepped in. Lost the fight. Didn't get finished. Went the distance, but was wanting a full fight camp. Well, here you go. Now he gets a shot at the title with a full camp and no excuses left. We kind of outlined this beforehand, Jose, when you were on the last time that Usman views this as, you know, the, the last light of a of a Masvidal lottery ticket. And I understand it. It's the money it's the money fight to make. But there could also be d- danger in that because he sought out Masvidal, a guy who has personal animosity for him. And despite his recent finish, has those lethal hands and can get stuff done. So do you see the danger in this fight, or do you think Usman is, is as locked in as ever based on that savage win in his last fight? I mean, Kamaru Usman is the champ for a reason. He is just mentally wired different than most fighters. 
Uh, he approaches every single fight very strategically, strategically, very methodically. Like he puts, he game plans like a master. Um, his time at Safford MMA was fan- Sanford MMA was fan- like it just it made him into the fighter he is with Henry Hooft and everyone down there. But since he's moved to Colorado to train with Trevor Whitman and Justin Gaethje, Rose Navajunas, I think Trevor Whitman is one of the best coaches in the world. Um, he has just evolved into just another level of fighter. Uh, like the the fighter that that fight against Colby Covington. Say what you want about Colby, he's probably the second best welter in the world right now. Uh, and that fight between Usman and Covington was unreal. That fight was unreal. Uh, and I, Masvidal, I think having not having the full camp is a legit excuse. Like he lost. Does he win it, it, it with a full camp? I don't know. We'll see. I'm glad they're running it back. I wouldn't have made it now. I probably would have had Masvidal fight one, like get a win, and then maybe fight. But the questions are there, and I, anytime there are questions, I want to see the rematch. I want to see the re, I want to see Masvidal fight Nate again for the sole reason that there are questions with it. Like if could Nate have won if that cut didn't gash his face open? So I don't know. I I this is a 50-50 fight to me too. It's been won, so I favor. I always favor the champ. I always favor the guy who won the first time because like what's different? Well, what's different this time is Masvidal has a full camp. Uh, he doesn't have to cut 20 pounds in like five days. So, do I give Masvidal a better chance? 100%. Masvidal might have the best striking in the welterweight division. Like obviously, obviously, Stephen Thompson is there. Just different striking. Stephen Thompson doesn't have like that KO power. It's like he just crushes you with bug bites the whole time. And Masvidal can kick your head in. He can punch your head in. He can do whatever he wants on the feet. So, this fight rules. Uh, I want to see. I want to see this fight again. Probably would have Masvidal fight one more time. Still not complaining. Fifty-fifty fight to me. Wow, that that's stronger than I would I would say. And uh, I am a fan of Masvidal, and I respect his gifts as a fighter. But I don't think a louder message, Jose, was sent in the last I don't know, I'll say six months or so, roughly, than what Usman sent in his last title fight. Dominantly winning, showing yeah. that he is deserves to be in the mix, not just as you know, pound for pound, but. He's starting to put together a great resume historically as well. So that's that's where I'm looking at this. He is the best he's ever looked and no no slippage whatsoever. I just don't know if Masvidal, as, as much as that knockout power and, and knee-kicking power and all that stuff is there, I just don't know that he can match up to win the fight. Now, what I'm worried about is I think the, the game plan that Usman implemented in the first fight might be to just you know wrestle him and quote unquote make it a boring fight. So this might not have the sizzle that some of the other fights would have. And again, not that I you know would question a winning game plan, but that'd be my fear watching this. Yeah, I think that's gonna, everyone's fear is going to be. But like at the same time, like you, would you blame Usman if he didn't want to stand and trade with Masvidal? Exactly. Like, that's if, the thing. If, if I'm <laughs> if I'm Usman. I do exactly what I did the first fight. Just shove him into the fence and then just like beat him up to the body and just kind of work your dirty boxing and make it a dirty, boring fight and then walk away with your title, get the second half of your paycheck, and get your pay-per-view points. Because at the end of the day, this is a prize fight. He's a prize fighter. He needs to get paid. So if Mizell wins, they'll probably do the rematch. If Usman wins, probably Colby Covington or the winner of Leon Edwards, Nate Diaz, who knows. Maybe they Conor McGregor tops up to fight a welterweight. I don't know. I have no idea oh, what's going to happen. Oh, come on. I have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen so in the well. welterweight division. <laughs> it's the UFC, man. They'll do whatever they want. If Conor McGregor wins, like he'll probably get a lightweight title fight, which is, again, ridiculous, but it is what it is. Um, 
yawning or over just, this. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, not you, but like, you know, it's just, I agree. it's, no, it's I get insane. It. I, and look, first of all, first of all, McGregor Usman, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a long oh, night, Connor. It would that's be, a, a it would be a mall. <laughs> it would be a mauling, but it's a hard way to earn a paycheck. Uh, for a guy Usman, that has would a make a, Usman would make a lot of money and that would he be would. great for him. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is what it is. Uh, I think this fight's 50, 50 and I can't wait for it. Well, if it's 50-50 and you're not Nostradamus here, then uh, I think we're all in for a treat. And uh, I'm really excited for this pay-per-view card. Jose Young's from MMA Fighting. This was uh, a blast. Um, last thing. It's one of the last things I want to get to. Just your instant reaction, your quick thoughts on uh, the lightweight title fight that we're going to get. Chandler and Oliveira. Not the one people were expecting. No. McGregor, Poirier, they go the trilogy, a.k.a. money route. And Gaethje's kind of just left outside yeah. for the moment. So thoughts on how it all shaped out. Uh, I feel bad for Gaethje. I, I would have been much more interested in Oliveira Gaethje or, or, or better yet, Chandler Gaethje would have been fantastic. But I love, Charles Oliveira deserves it. You beat, you beat Tony Ferguson, you should probably fight for the title. He's on the longest. He's on an incredibly long win streak. Has the record for most submissions in the in like UFC history. Like he passed Hoist Gracie. I also think he has like the second most stoppage wins ever. Like if you look at Charles Oliveira's resume, he's a, he's a, he's sneakily a UFC Hall of Famer because I think he made his UFC debut when he was twenty and has just been very active lately. However, I think my, I favor Michael Chandler historically. If you look at, oh, at Michael okay. Chandler's past mm. fights, if you look at Michael Chandler's past fights, he does very well against. BJJ black belts. Like I level black belts. Charles Oliveira is every definition of the word of black belt. I also think what Michael Chandler has said in a, in a pre, in an interview on another site, if you miss weight like a few times in your career, that means you are proven to have mentally quit at something. Charles Oliveira has also lost. He's also been submitted a lot in the UFC. He's been TKO in the UFC. So his body has given up on him. He's missed weight a bunch. So I. I Michael Chandler made a good point, so I favor Michael Chandler. Can is Charles Oliveira a different fighter? One hundred percent, but I want to see it. I want him to prove it. If he goes out there and submits Mike, Michael Chandler, I don't know who beats him. I would favor Gaethje, probably favor Poirier, but Charles Oliveira is a horrifying human being. He's basically an anaconda when he walks in there. Yeah, the the size thing is what takes you right five ten one fifty five. I mean, it's it's a different type of light lightweight. Uh, and, and by all by all accounts, just looking at his streak, I think it's you know the what eight fight win streak. Seven of the eight have been uh, finishes. Should have been eight of eight, but Tony Ferguson is just not human. When his arm was basically broke, yeah. pulled out of his socket, he just kept fighting. Um, but that said, I don't, I look at it as a coin flip fight. I haven't studied it up enough. Chandler is just such a new force, and and what a way to make a debut. Um, I don't blame Poirier for taking the, the money fight because no you know, he's going to be a factor in this division. It's just Gaethje is the one that I feel bad for. And yeah. I get McGregor you know, demand getting his demands because of the draw and because of the money and why guys want to fight him. But the title fight picture is the crazy thing to me because he hasn't proven it in his last few fights that he's worthy of that. Now, he's definitely worthy of headlining any show and calling his shot, but skipping to the line is what I'll always have a problem with when the results aren't there. No, I agree. Uh, the lightweight division has historically, I think outside, like currently, right, in the history of the UFC, I think lightweight's been the most competitive. Uh, you could just look at, like, I think the record for most submission, like st- title defenses is like three, maybe four, and, like, that shows you how competitive the division has been. 
as outside of bantamweight currently, I think lightweight is easily the most interesting. Uh, welterweight too, like anyone. If you look at anyone in the top five, they could all be champs of the UFC uh, in the lightweight title. I think the addition of Michael Chandler has just made it that much more interesting. Uh, and then like even like the even the prospects are good. Like Matei is a, a gamrot uh, who who's uh, who came over from KSW. That dude is unreal, and I think he got he kind of got shafted in his debut. He was a champ champ at KSW, which is like the the like K, for for those of you who only follow like UFC Bellator, KSW is bigger than the UFC in Poland. Like if you watch one of their shows, it's like a WrestleMania event. <laughs> like there's pyros, there's lights, there's live. It's it's pretty unbelievable. And, and Gamrot was basically the face of that promotion for a bit. Uh, that's where uh, uh, Pujanowski, like former world strongest man, fights. Uh, so. He's all like lightweight rules, and I'm glad the division is moving on. I hope McGregor doesn't skip the queue. Uh, unless if he wants to fight, if he beats Dustin Poirier and wants to fight Justin Gaethje, I wouldn't say no to that. As you beat Poirier Gaethje back to back, you should fight for a title. Wow, <laughs> there's animosity there between Gaethje and McGregor. Oh, they, Honestly, hate, they hate each other. Stylistically, that's a very fun fight, too. Just gonna just gonna leave that there. Um, Jose Youngs, you got a busy week. I'll let you get back to it. Thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Uh, unless there is an update on uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, you want to share with me because we haven't talked in yeah, a while. Yeah, the belt, the new belt sucks. <laughs> That's <laughs> they the just, update. <laughs> they made the new title like they combines the heavyweight, the Intercontinental, which is frustrating. Uh, just because I loved the history of the Intercontinental title, especially uh, when it was uh, like when it was used by um got nakamura uh he made it mean something and i think this new belt is so dumb <laughs> it looks terrible it looks like a power rangers toy uh, i also am just such a mark for the old heavyweight championship i'm glad it looked really good on ibushi and it looks good on will osprey but because they're kind of over the top characters like but like if jay white or or naito if they win it it's gonna look goofy on them. It's just not an aesthetically pleasing belt. Uh, I'm glad. I'm excited to see what Will Osprey can do as the champion. Uh, I'm I'm very very curious if uh, Andrade uh, from the WWE that just got cut. Right. He used to be La, he used to be La Sombra uh, on the CMLL scene and New Japan. He's a former New Japan Intercontinental champ. If he returns and jo- rejoins Lij with Naito, oh man. Oh my God! I think the wrestling world is just needs wow. the wrestling world has needed kind of an injection of like crazy New Japan uh, storylines, and I think that's what should happen. I selfishly, I want that to happen. Wow, that that would be good because we're gonna get the travel, uh, you know, restrictions hopefully up in a, in a in time. All these companies working basically together against the WWE, <laughs> it's gonna be good and. Uh, Wow, I can't wait for that. Uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, it's growing. It's doing great. Uh, just wish, like you, they had a better belt design. But oh, one day. it's so stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> one day, one day. Jose, this was fun. Best of luck uh, covering UFC 261 and uh, covering events going forward. Thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Anytime, my guy. All right, huge thanks again to Jose Youngs for appearing on the show, breaking down UFC 261. It's going to be great, and got to always sneak in that New Japan Pro Wrestling talk at the end. But props to Jose. He'll be covering 
this fight, the lead up to, and the actual event from Jacksonville. So check out all his stuff at MMAfighting.com. Next up, it's Nick Morton. First time on the show, a lot to say about the Southern California baseball renaissance, how many players have been making it from out of this area into the league, as well as what his Dodgers are doing the rest of the division races and the early going of the baseball season, and some soccer news. Yes, you heard that right, some soccer news on this show for the first time with the Super League being started or whatever that was, and then uh, immediately faltering out of the gate. Nick Morton here on the Money Mitch Effect. Here it is now. All right, we wrap up this week's episode of the Money Mitch Effect with a uh, first-time guest to talk baseball, uh, a little other stuff as well, a uh, baseball player himself back in the day. Some say if he played his cards right, he could have been the fourth member of that free Giolito Flaherty crew, but instead he's on this show, uh, a co-worker of mine from uh, the Tennis Channel. It's Nick Morton. Nick, first-time guest. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Yeah, we're not going to just re- revisit your baseball career uh, with the Butler Bulldogs, but uh, part of that Southern California <laughs> Sun Belt, I, I guess I just want to know my perspective, my question to you, why is it that so many great baseball players, especially you know your generation, mid to late 20s, just keep getting pumped out of uh, this area in California? Yeah, I think it's just the talent we have here. Um, you know, the guys... Growing up, the competition levels are so high; it just makes makes everyone that much better. And obviously, the opportunities to play—you know, weather's weather's perfect all year round. There's so many different travel leagues and teams you can be a part of. So, I think it's really just about the high quality of competition and just the number of reps we're all getting. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Um, you know, and I didn't even mention my guy Shane Bieber, another one who. You know, he was in a way overshadowed. Like that's how deep the talent pool is. Like there's so many good players here. Mm-hmm. You take a guy like that from another region of the country, you know, even another part of California, even, and they're the talk of the town and they're the main guy. I think you even see it at the college level here when you have some so many programs in the state of California where UCLA can have, you know, Pleasak be their number three starter and. You know, Fullerton's always pumping out good teams as well, Santa Barbara. So for whatever reason, I do think that it starts at youth level, but when you get to even the college and certainly the pro level, it's just so many deep programs uh, around the state. Yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely say uh, SoCal produces, produces some of the best guys, no bias here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just the, throughout the collegiate level as well, I mean, you have tiny Cal State Fullerton, um, even Pepperdine has been ranked this year. So just tiny schools that, you know, have just a plethora of, of talent and really don't have to recruit from, you know, 25 miles outside of their their radius. Um, yeah, just a lot of talented guys out here. Somehow somehow uh, USC football has to pick up that memo of just not being able to, not having to recruit 25 miles outside the Right, radius. yeah, that's, that's the whole <laughs> rabbit hole we don't have to get into. No, uh, <laughs> as far as the professional game goes, uh, obviously you growing up out here, a Dodger fan, and what they've done the last couple of years. This team, I mean, they won the World Series last year. Uh, they've been in the mix and, and been a favorite for a while. I, I saw the stat where I don't think they've been an underdog in about two years, which is just ridiculous. But this mm-hmm. team right now, how they've started and, and what they've done on the heels of last year, 
Nick, it looks like the best team the Dodgers have ever had out of the gates. And uh, 14 and 4, it's hard to to find a weakness uh, in what they have. Are you on that same boat? Do you think this is maybe the best version of the Dodgers we've seen this era? Yeah, I think, you know, at least in my lifetime, this is the best Dodgers team that we've ever had. You know, it's been a it's been a long road coming. Um, this past decade, really, we've won, you know, nine straight division titles. But the, what was always lacking was the pitching, I feel like. And our bullpen is, is stacked now. We made some great, great free agent moves. Um, and then, obviously, with the addition of Mookie, I mean, the best player in baseball, um, okay. Our lineup one through eight uh-huh. is just stacked. Um, yeah, and I think this is the best version. Um, now that we've got that championship under our belt, I think it relieves a lot of pressure and guys can just go out there and have a little bit more fun. Well, I'm never going to say that someone outside of Trout is the best player in baseball, but Mookie's right there for sure. Um, and I'd actually, yeah, if you'd actually I think 1A, 1B. Yeah, yeah. And, and the guy that also is, is entering the chat, is uh, Acuna. I mean, what he's done this year and on the heels of the last couple of years. Uh, but the point being yeah, that not bad. the point being that Mookie all around play, especially the defense. You add a guy like Trevor Bauer in the off season too. There really isn't much weakness mm-hmm. there. And for all the spending that that I I rib you about, they do as you mentioned grow out of their talent and have made the right decision. I, I think the the biggest thing is obviously the payroll is is big and they're able to afford it, which is a nice luxury to have. But the Dodgers, as opposed to some other high-profile pro, payroll teams, have made the right decision on who to keep. You can't keep everybody. The Red mm-hmm. Sox, even the Yankees, have faltered in that regard, but the Dodgers have made those tough decisions and made them in the right way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of luck and skill. So we've been able to draft extremely well, um, specifically that 2016 draft. We have a few guys on that team. Um, Will Smith, Cody Bellinger, Zach McKinstry. Um, that came out of that draft class. Um, that was um, just a huge, huge year for us draft-wise. And then the luck just comes in, you know, on some of these free agents. You look at Justin Turner, Chris Taylor. I mean, they were pretty average ball players until they, even Max Muncie, pretty average ball players until they got with us and then just exploded. So you know, it's a kind of a perfect, perfect storm of of luck and just being able to scout the right guys. So far this year, it has been a great start for the Dodgers, uh, certainly, uh, with 94 runs scored and just 56 given up. Looking at that division, Nick, and, and everyone was talking about whether it would be the Padres, and, and again, it's early, 20 games played for less than 20 for a lot of these teams. Padres are 10-10, and 10, the Giants doing better at 11-7, and 7. Rockies and, and Diamondbacks not that good. So far, who do you think is a legit contender if there is one to maybe not challenge the Dodgers in this division, but make the playoffs and make a run? Is it the Padres? Will the Giants be here? What are your thoughts on the rest of the division? Yeah, I think easy answer is the Padres. Um, I think what they've added to their arsenal, um, more importantly, again, is just the pitching. You know, the pitching is going to carry carry you deep into that October run, you know, defense wins championships, holds true, um, especially with a good bullpen. And some of the arms that they've added um, has been huge huge for them already. Um, the Giants, I think, will, will probably fade. Um, 
this usually happens every year, at least one team. Usually it's the Rockies. They start off super hot, um, looks good for a few months, and then they burn out come midsummer. So I think I, I think uh, the Padres will definitely make the wild card spot. I think they just have too much firepower in that lineup to to not put up put up enough runs. Um, and that yeah, again that pitching should hold. Yeah, three and seven in their last ten, but the Tatis Jr. injury was a big part of that. And uh, again, super mm-hmm. early they ran into the Dodgers, who've been playing great. So I mean, I think that's part of it as well. It's just fascinating. We're back to a we're back to a traditional or, or modern traditional playoff format of of five teams. I think the Dodgers are the only team leading their division right now that was kind of like expected to. I know it's early, but you can mm-hmm. maybe Oakland in the AL West, but uh, every other every other division it just seems like is a little topsy turvy. Even in the NL, where the Central is just a logjam with Milwaukee on top, a lot of teams thought the Cardinals mm-hmm. would be there. They're they're technically tied for last, but just three games out, and and the NL East is just hard to figure out with teams not even being allowed to, not even being able to play early. So still a lot of time to to assess these teams and then see where they go. But I agree with you on the Padres um, as being a contender. And I do think that the NL, maybe it's the Dodgers being great, but the depth isn't quite what it was in terms of quality playoff teams, at least early on. I don't know if you agree with that, but I just don't know if the NL, who, which had been known for so much depth in the past, just seems like a couple-team race uh, for this year. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And I think a lot of teams are going to beat each other up um, as you mentioned, kind of with these tight division races. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of teams with, you know, that huge winning percentage. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of quality out there. And, you know, in October, anything can happen. It's the magic of the playoffs. But, um, yeah, I think if you look at Atlanta, I think I know they started off pretty slow, but they should come on. And I, I think they're favored, <clears throat> favored to win that division. Um but yeah, I think AL East is really just the the biggest worry for for a deep push into October. I mean, the Nationals are pretty decent as well. Yeah. Um, Central, obviously, very competitive. All those teams are going to beat each other up, but I just don't see any of them having the strength to uh, to make it to the World Series. Yeah, the Cardinals were that trendy pick because uh, of their of their offseason moves and whatnot, but uh, they've had some really close close losses, and the pitching just hasn't been there early on. So we'll see. Uh, it is early. Uh, Nick Morton here on the Money Mitch Effect. Before we get to the AL, just a question for you, just a little aside as someone that you know pitched. Are there, are there certain players, and we can kind of take the Dodgers out of it, just certain players that you like dealing? Like who, who are your favorite pitchers to watch uh, in 2021? Dodgers aside? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could take the no, Dodgers no. out of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one guy that we've already been able to see in the Dodger Stadium was Max Scherzer. Oh, yeah. I mean, the guy's been been lights out for, you know, a decade now at least. Um, you know, even though he's towards the back end of his, his, of his career, he's still, he's still dealing. He's still dangerous. And, you know, I've actually been enjoying watching Shohei Otani because um, oh. that's still kind of, kind of an unknown in baseball. Um, obviously he got hurt last year. Um, but he seems to be doing, being healthy this year. Um, and it's just interesting to see what he's got, um, how he matches up with MLB guys, but he's been, he's been a fun one to watch as well. Yeah, I think, uh, Otani, and, and that's a good point. Um, 
how he's looked. He's looked great. He's doing it on both in both pitching and hitting, hitting bombs as well. But uh, do you think that's a good? I guess I don't want to say plan because he, he's pitching pretty well. But is that going to be an advantage going forward? My question being that you know they have to play without a DH when he's in there. So the more this goes on, maybe a big game. If he doesn't last that long, they lose that ability to have a DH when he has to hit, and then you're having to play the NL game of double switches. Do you think that's a, a burden that might be too big? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, I've always worried about him pitching and hitting. Um, I think it's a it's a great spectacle. Spectacle, excuse me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I worry. Obviously, Angels. There's a lack of depth at pitching, so I think they kind of really rely on him to be that guy um, starting or coming out of the bullpen. But, I mean, I would prefer him just to be just an outfield player, just hitter. Obviously, he's already had injuries, uh, so he's a bit of a liability. But, again, the Angels, they are in need of that position, and I think they're going to ride it out as much as they can. Another guy uh, I wanted to mention just briefly is uh, Degrom. It's it's amazing to watch him pitch. It's just funny mm-hmm. that they can't figure out how to get him run support uh, at all in, in yeah. New York. But uh, you know, and then and then also uh, it'll segue into my guy Bieber, who's just in, in, insane. The strikeout rate's been mm-hmm. crazy. Um, of course, the Indians have their problems with uh, hitting, which is going to be the death of them. I've talked about that a, a million times on this show, but. Mm-hmm. But Bieber's been great, and uh, my question again to you, Nick, is how does he make it work? He's not a guy that has tremendous velocity. It's location, it's disguise from what I know, but but what is it uh, that makes Bieber as, as deadly and lethal as he is? Yeah, it's it's his ability to really command all of his pitching. Um, it's, not, it's really just location, being able to mix it up, and I think he feels confident throwing any pitch in any count, and that's that's a huge part of any pitcher's pitcher's arsenal is really just being able to rely on any pitch. And obviously he's been so dominant these last few years. I think the confidence is there now. Um, He feels that he's the ace and he's really earned it. And again, it's location and relying on every single pitch in in any count. And that confidence is that last, last little piece where he's got that attitude that he's just going to get anybody out. And, you know, that goes a long way. Yeah, it's old Jamie Moyer-like. I remember reading about him, too, as well, where he just didn't have velocity but is completely comfortable on any pick, on any pitch, mm-hmm. being able to do whatever. And, you know, I mean, it's it's been a blessing to see him for my team. But, uh, you know, especially as a guy <laughs> that was a fringe guy in the majors and, and getting this chance. Uh, I guess we'll we'll wrap the, the baseball part of this talking with uh, talking about the AL East which has been a little interesting because the Red Sox, who weren't really expected to be major players, start out pretty hot. They're 12-7, and seven, and on the flip side of that, the, the mighty Yankees are 6-11 and 11 with the worst OPS in all of baseball. I don't know what surprises me more, Nick. I think it's the Yankees being as bad as they are because you know early on teams could get hot in baseball, but props to the Red Sox for starting out strong. And, and on the Yankees' side, I'm just completely stunned that nobody on that team basically can get a hit. Yeah, no, that that division is uh has been a fun one to watch for sure, um, because I don't think really a lot of people expected Boston to start off as good as they have. Um, you know, they've won some big series already, and yeah, the Yankees is just it's comical. Um, you look at that lineup, and you know it is a very kind of 
home run or bust uh, lineup. You have really LeMay, who, who is the kind of rock and anchor, and you can rely on him to have that higher average. But as far as everybody else, I mean, they don't have a lot of hit-for-average guys. So maybe it's not as huge a surprise as, you know, their, their you know, lineup is just horrendous right now. Um, yeah. But, you know, I love, I love to see, you know, like first or second series, at Yankee Stadium, you already have the fans throwing stuff on the field, <laughs> chaos in the stands. It's, it's beautiful to see. Yeah, the, the two that stand out for me for the Yankees are uh, Torres, who's just been abysmal, who's hitting under 200 and, and has one RBI. He doesn't have RBIs. He just has one run batted in all season. And, uh, you know, another SoCal guy, John Carlos Stanton, this year has just been dreadful, but – 21 mm-hmm. strikeouts already in the year in uh, 57 at bats. So, not even hitting for average, yeah. Nick. Not even hitting for contact is is what they're doing. So <laughs> it's going to be a problem. Yeah. It's going to be a problem for them. But uh, that division probably won't run away from them with Tampa taking a step back so far and and Boston looking good. But we'll see if they can hold up, especially pitching wise. Well, that was fun, and we're going to see how baseball goes. Appreciate you coming on to talk about that. Before I let you go, uh, Nick Morton on the Money Mitch effect. I think it's well known that I don't really follow soccer, so I just want what you're doing and what your knowledge is of this Super League thing that seems like it's dead on arrival. What happened? Why is, uh, I know money is involved, but why is it that uh, this league was formed? Who is behind it? And ultimately, why is it you know dead already after, what, 48 hours? Yeah, I think it was even less. I think it might have been closer to 24. Um, basically, it was a power play between a few billionaires and UEFA and FIFA. And it was kind of because I think the UEFA is restructuring the champions league, which is kind of the crown jewel of European soccer. Everyone wants to win that trophy and there's a bit of restructuring. And I think these few clubs that really pushed for this super league, um, kind of wanted a little bit more of the pie a little bit more money for themselves. They don't want as much UEFA regulation. And, you know, they put their plan out into the world and united everyone in the world. All the fans came together and said, this is absolutely terrible. Um, obviously, there's only 12 teams in the league and all tweet, I believe 10 of those teams would be guaranteed to stay in the league. Um, and maybe two more would come in and out every year. But basically only 10 teams would would gain million, hundreds of millions of dollars yearly by being in this league, and everyone else would just suffer. So really it was about the rich getting richer and uh, leaving one, leaving everyone else in the dust. So all the fans came came together and united against, you know, these, these 12 owners, and, yeah, it was quickly uh, gotten rid of. Yeah, the rich getting richer, not exactly in vogue, as they say. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. It's also hard to unite everybody and, and all the sports fans against anybody, unite them on anything. Mm-hmm. So props, I guess, for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and when FIFA are the good guys, in a way, you know you know something's, something's going wrong. Do you think the threat of, because again, I don't really follow much, and I know that there's so many different leagues and tournaments and opportunities to just play more soccer, and, and, and I get the fact that similar to you know a league that's uncapped, you're just bringing in more money. You're, you're bringing in more revenue that's making it unfair when, when player contracts are up that you can pay more and the rich are getting richer and the 
the, the poorer teams, so to speak, can't afford. But do you think that the FIFA threat of players won't be allowed to play in the World Cup, do you think that ultimately swayed it in, in you know the good direction, so to speak? Uh, I think that was a huge part of it, um, definitely. I don't know, you know, how how they would have played that out um, on legal aspect, but I think it was really just the voices of the fans and the power of the fans uniting. And it was pretty unanimous, you know, looking on soccer Twitter, it's pretty unanimous that everyone was against this. <laughs> yeah. Um, you had you had protests going on outside of the stadiums. Um, you know, it was it was pretty pretty poorly thought out plan. I mean, obviously they didn't consult with the fans because they knew this would, I think, be the ultimate reaction. Um, but yeah, the, the threat that, you know, players wouldn't play in the World Cup. Also, they were threatening that the teams wouldn't be allowed to play in their domestic leagues as well mm. um, was a huge factor in it. But yeah, all around, this was a pretty, pretty poorly thought out uh, league. Well, We'll have to uh, cheers to uh, give a toast to uh, the Super League that didn't happen. Um, but hey, yeah. RIP. RIP. It's all good for everybody else that uh, this didn't happen. And uh, one last soccer league to kind of try to follow and, and stick up with. Uh, Nick, pleasure <laughs> talking to you. But lastly, is this going to be LAFC's year? And if so, why? This is going to be our year, man. We've got three years of experience under our belt. Um, Diego Rossi, Carlos Vela. Golden Boot MVP, I'm calling it. I'm a cup wow. 2021 Los Angeles Football Club. And a parade. We're going to have a parade at the end of the year. What? Well, that's that's confidence. Uh, what <laughs> round What round would they have to play if it's Galaxy, LAFC? I, I have no idea if either of these teams are good. It, depend, it depends on, on the rankings. It depends. Okay, so, so it there's could be no, any, there's any not, of the rounds. Right. There's no conference, so to speak. So the, you can uh, play in either well, round. Well, we, we wouldn't mean the – we would be like conference final conference division final. round. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. You can mean the – yeah. That would but be But we something. wouldn't mean the final. That would be something. I want that play. Yeah, that would be that would be great. Um, the, the Galaxy just got a new coach, um, well-respected coach in MLS. So it should automatically be a little bit better because – you know, sometimes all you need is a great coach to turn around a terrible team in MLS. So, yeah. yeah, they should be a little more competitive and maybe get on our level this year. Who knows? That's the best. That's the most, you know, unknown rivalry right now, especially in California. Like, it's just these two soccer clubs. There's this There's this personal animosity. It's the old guard of, of the Galaxy saying, basically, we invented the sport. We're, you know, bow down to us. And ULAFC <laughs> fans are all fake and transplants and and not real fans and then you guys are like your team's lame and you know you guys had a while right. to figure it out we got this cool stadium with uh nice amenities and a nice location for pre and post games so the rivalry is heating up and i love it yeah i think it's it's great for the sport great for the popularity of soccer in america um yeah it's been it's been a lot of fun um all the games are heated intense every game is a playoff game between these two and I think it'll only get better. Well, we're going to have to monitor that as well as the baseball season. Nick Morton, thanks for uh, making your debut here on the Money Mitch Effect. And uh, hope to be chatting with you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me.
That's going to do it for this week's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. Thanks again to both guests, Jose Youngs from MMA Fighting and Nick Morton. Thanks again, a special thanks to Tim Adams, who's been supplying the music to the show all these years, as well as Brian Nelson, who supplied the artwork. Thanks again to those guys for keeping the show good and strong. Make sure you search Money Mitch Effect in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play, wherever podcasts are found for the entire catalog of the show, where you can subscribe, leave a rating, or a review. There's also the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page where you can get your content there. And I'm on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. Next week's show is going to be a big one, an NFL draft preview. i got a lot to say on that, as well as some hockey talk and uh, whatever the top sports headlines, including recapping UFC 261. It's going to be a great show next week as well. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep enjoying sports. <laughs>